0: Evidence and answers. One of the most important events in the Old Testament is the Exodus from Egypt. This event has been celebrated for nearly 3,000 years by the Jews and plays a major role in not only their history, but for Christians as well. However, did this event actually happen? Most Near East archaeologists and Old Testament scholars believe this event is a legend. Is there evidence for the Exodus? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today on Evidence and Answers, Pat will reveal the latest discoveries that bring new evidence and insights into this major biblical narrative. Now with part one of examining the Exodus is our host, Pat Zucran.
1: You're listening to Evidence and Answers, where we provide compelling evidence for faith and hope in Christ and biblical answers to the challenges of today. Well, we're starting our series on examining the Exodus. This is perhaps one of the most important events in the Old Testament, and also it has tremendous ramifications for the New Testament and the Christian as well. So we're going to be doing our series on the Exodus. Now, I'm going to be going through a lot of facts and information during this series. And many of you listening there on radio, I don't expect you to get all these facts down, you know, as soon as you hear it. But... You'll probably be interested in the things that I say, and you can go to our website at evidenceandanswers.org, evidenceandanswers.org, and read our article on examining the Exodus, or I believe it's titled The Exodus Examined, right? And you can read our extensive article and listen to this show again, along with other great interviews that I've done with scholars on this area of the Exodus. Well, one of the most important events in the Old Testament is the Exodus event from Egypt. This event has been celebrated for nearly 3,000 years by the Jews and plays a major role in the history of the nation. It's during the Exodus that Israel was established as a nation. It was at the Exodus that God displayed His greatest miracles, delivering His people from slavery in Egypt. And it's during this time that the law was given to the nation. Many of the Jewish festivals come from the Exodus, such as the Passover, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Tabernacles. The Exodus is also a significant event for Christians as well. Jesus quotes the Pentateuch numerous times in his teachings, affirming things like the Mosaic authorship, the Exodus event, and specific events mentioned in the Exodus journey of Israel throughout his teachings. Jesus even celebrated the Exodus event of the Passover and gave new meaning to this supper. So the importance of the Exodus to the Old and New Testament cannot be understated. It is one of the most important events in Old Testament Judaism and it has ramifications for the Christian as well. However, did this great event actually happen? There are skeptics and archaeologists called minimalists who do not believe the Old Testament prior to 1 Kings, is historical. Most scholars question the existence of Moses and the historical authenticity of the Exodus account. In fact, most Near Eastern archaeologists believe the Exodus account is a legend invented by Israelite priests of the 7th century BC during the reign of Josiah. Minimalists believe the Israelites were actually a powerful Canaanite tribe that rose to prominence. And when they became an empire, they created this myth of the Exodus to give their newly formed nation a history and identity. That is a common practice in Middle Eastern cultures. And so many skeptics and minimalist archaeologists believe that indeed this is what was practiced by the Israelites here. Well, if the Exodus did not occur, this would be a major blow to the historical integrity of the Bible and even to the deity of Christ, for Christ would be wrong in quoting these events and referring to them as historical. So it's for these reasons we need to examine the evidence and see if there is a case for the Exodus and the conquest stories of Canaan. Now, most Near Eastern archaeologists believe that The Exodus is a legendary account. Here's what some of the top modern Near Eastern archaeologists say about the Exodus. Thomas Thompson says this about biblical history. Salvation history is not a historical account of saving events open to the study of the historian. Salvation history did not happen. It is a literary form which has its own historical context. In fact, we can say that the faith of Israel is not a historical faith in the sense of a faith based on historical events. It is better a faith within history. Dorothy Irvine says this about Israelite history. Of these narratives, the Vedic lore, as well as all the narratives of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, the historical problem is not so much that they are historically unverifiable, and especially not that they are untrue historically, but that they are radically irrelevant as sources of Israel's history. Israel Finkelstein says this on the conquest. combination of archaeological and historical research demonstrates that the biblical account of the conquest and occupation of Canaan by the Israelites is entirely divorced from historical reality. This is what the majority of Near Eastern archaeologists say. This is what is in our history textbooks. And if you have students taking religion class at the high school or collegiate level, this is most likely the kind of teaching that they're going to get. So if one of the major events of the Old Testament is indeed fictional, then much of the Bible then stands in question. Critics argue that there is little, or some even say no archaeological evidence, that corroborates an event like the Exodus or the conquest of Canaan. Critics argue that there are no extra biblical records or records outside the Bible of the Exodus in Egypt or the Near East. They also point out that the archaeological data of Canaan does not match up with the date and events of Israel's conquest of Canaan mentioned in the book of Joshua. Now, one of the first things critics point out is that there is no mention of the Hebrews in Egyptian records. Critics argue that plagues killing a massive segment of the Egyptian population, plagues ruining their food supply, the loss of their army uh, in the Red Sea, and a mass migration of slaves exiting Egypt would have crippled the nation's economy, military, and government. And if this were the case, why is this never mentioned in any Egyptian records? Another major point of contention is the date of the exodus and conquest of Canaan. Now, conservative Bible scholars date the Exodus at about 1446 B.C. This is based on the passage of 1 Kings 6.1. This means the conquest of Canaan then occurred about 1406 B.C. We'll talk more about the date of the Exodus later on in the show. However, most biblical scholars favor a later date of the Exodus around 1260 B.C. and the conquest about 1220 B.C. based on Exodus 1.11, which states that the Israelites built the cities of Python and Ramses. Many believe it refers to Ramses II, who ruled from 1290 to 1230 B.C. However, either of these dates are problematic because the archaeology in the land of Canaan does not yield strong support for either the early date of 1446 B.C. or the late date of the Exodus, 1260 B.C. A key city is Jericho, the first city that Joshua conquered after he crossed the Jordan River. Most archaeologists agree the city was destroyed and abandoned from 1550 B.C. to 1200 B.C. So for nearly 350 years, this city was abandoned. Therefore, if the Exodus occurred in 1446 B.C. or 1260 B.C., then Joshua arrived at Jericho either at 1406 B.C. or 1220 B.C. when the city was abandoned. Critics would also argue that the city of Ai, which is believed to be at the modern site called Etel, was abandoned at this time as well. Therefore, many conclude that the biblical stories of Jericho and Ai are simply mythical. If the conquest stories are legendary accounts, minimalists also conclude then that the exodus must be as well. Well, you know, it appears that the critics have a strong case against the exodus. And for generations, the critics seem to be winning the argument, and many Christians were beginning to concede that the story of the exodus may have to be believed on the basis of faith alone. Why is there no mention of the plague's or the loss of the Egyptian army in the Red Sea? Why is there little, if any, mention of the Exodus in Egyptian records? And why is there little archaeology for the Exodus? Well, there are a few reasons that could account for this. First, while wandering in the desert, Israel remained mobile with no permanent settlements. Second, Egypt, as is the case with most Middle Eastern kings of this time, would not keep records of such a defeat upon their nation. Third, according to many archaeologists, we have not yet excavated a vast majority of the sites, and there are many more discoveries yet to be made. Now, these are reasonable answers to the critics' challenge, but not very satisfactory. If there was an event as momentous as the exodus and conquest of Canaan, we should find some historical data that supports such an event. Well, recent discoveries by archaeologists alongside careful study of the biblical account is beginning to turn the tide. Can we build a case for the Exodus? I believe the archaeology interpreted correctly builds a strong case for the Exodus. So as we embark on this journey, we must first use the best approach in examining the evidence. And What is this approach? Well, there have been several approaches used by archaeologists and historians. In examining the authenticity of the Exodus account, it's important that we begin with the correct approach. Now, there have been two extreme approaches to studying biblical archaeology. Some biblical scholars will base their conclusions solely on the biblical text. After drawing their conclusions, some will look At the archaeological data while some will simply ignore the data. Authority goes to their interpretation of the biblical text, and many dismiss the archaeology that is inconsistent with their conclusion. Now, this approach upholds the high view of Scripture and the doctrine of biblical inerrancy. However, there is a danger when looking at the archaeological data through a biased lens and making the data fit your interpretation. History has shown there have been several significant cases when biblical scholars, in their haste to make a biblical connection, misread the archaeological data and arrived at wrong conclusions. Also, it is unwise to ignore the archaeology, even the data that does not quite match your interpretation of the Bible. There have been numerous times when... The archaeology has illuminated our understanding of the text or even corrected our understanding of the biblical text. Let us remember the Bible in its original text, written by the hand of the original authors, is not wrong. But the copies that have been passed on over centuries, there have been scribal errors. Although we have some very accurate copies There were some scribal additions and errors that were made that we have been able to decipher and clear up. That's why we find as many ancient manuscripts as we can to get accurate to the original text. And so the copies may have some discrepancies here, but also our interpretation may also be in error. So it's important we do not ignore the archaeology that is in front of us. Now, on the other hand, there are other scholars known as minimalists who rely on the archaeology and pay little or no attention to the biblical text. Minimalists believe that the archaeology must be viewed objectively and biblical scholars are tainted by their bias. And since they approach the data with an agenda, they misread the data. And unfortunately, there have been cases indeed where biblical scholars in their haste have come to wrong conclusions. And it was quite embarrassing. And the world of biblical archaeology received a black eye for many years as a result of some of these mistakes. However, it's unwise to ignore the Bible. Because the Bible has proven to be a good historical record, and the Bible often helps the archaeologists understand the meaning and context of their discovery. One of the unique things about the Bible and the Christian faith is that it is a historical faith. And this is indeed a historical record that gives us an understanding of the archaeological data that is there. So the best approach I believe, and the one that I'll be applying, is what I believe is the most balanced approach. Uh, My mentor in the archaeology program is Dr. Stephen Collins, and he calls this the dialogical approach. This approach looks at both the Bible and the archaeology. See, the events of the Bible occur in the land of the Bible. The two are from the same soil and same reality. Therefore, the text can illuminate the archaeology, and the archaeology can illuminate the Bible. Now, when there appears to be a conflict, we should not be too quick to dismiss either sources. We need to examine the biblical text and make sure we have interpreted the text properly. Remember, there have been times archaeology has corrected faulty interpretations, and there are times we need to re-examine the archaeology. There have been times that the biblical account Help to interpret the data more accurately, or later discoveries were able to put the pieces of the biblical puzzle together. Therefore, in this approach, we will be interacting with both the biblical text and the archaeology to arrive at the most reasonable conclusion. We'll also be looking at what we call historical synchronisms. This means we'll look at both the Egyptian Near Eastern and biblical historical timelines to see where there are areas of correspondence with one another and when events seem to coincide with one another. Where there is this correspondence in various records, we can reasonably conclude the time and the authenticity of the event. So I believe this approach, the dialogical approach of studying the biblical text, and examining the archaeology and having the two dialogue back and forth together in a figurative sense provides the best way to study the Exodus. Now, the Exodus narrative begins in the book of Genesis. According to the Bible, Joseph is sold into Egyptian slavery by his brothers. And we all know that famous story, Joseph, his coat of many colors and how he was betrayed by his brothers and sold into slavery into the land of Egypt. And through the providence of God, Joseph rises from a slave to become the second most powerful ruler in Egypt, only under the Pharaoh. And eventually we know that famous story of how Joseph is reunited with his family. And they all migrate from Canaan to Egypt, where, through the blessing of God, they grow to a sizable population. However, Exodus 1.8 states, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. This king viewed foreigners, like the Hebrews, as a threat to the nation. So to control these foreigners, he forces them into slavery. Now, Critics argue that the story of Joseph is fictitious for several reasons. First, a large migration of Asiatics into Egypt is unlikely, for the Egyptians, they say, would not allow such a thing. Second, it is even more unlikely that the Egyptians would allow a foreigner like Joseph to arise to such a prominent position as he did. Well, is there evidence of migrants into Egypt during this period? And could a foreigner indeed rise to prominence in an empire like Egypt? Well, one of the repeating themes in the patriarchal narratives is the recurrence of drought in the land of Canaan. And through studies in climatology, pedology, the study of the soil, geology, geography, geomorphology, paleobotany, and other sciences, archaeologists can determine climates of each period and when droughts occurred. Now, the patriarchs from Abraham to Joseph date from the time what is called the Middle Bronze Age II, which would be from 1900 to 1550 B.C., once again, I don't expect you to get all this information listening there on the radio, but you can go to our website at evidenceandanswers.org and you can read the article I have on examining the Exodus and get all these facts. Right Now, during the preceding periods, before the Middle Bronze Age, we have something called the Intermediate Bronze Age from 2300 to about 2100. And Middle Bronze Age 1, from 2100 to 1900, these are the periods before the patriarchs, before Abraham. And studies have shown there's ample rainfall, and the population in the Levant grew considerably. However, during Middle Bronze Age 2 period, this is the time of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Southern Levant the Canaan area, where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob lived, suffered from several periods of drought after 1900 BC, which drove thousands of Semitic people to the Nile Delta. Egypt didn't suffer droughts like the rest of the Near East did because of the Nile. There was a consistent water supply there. So when there was drought in the Near East, in the Levant, there were many migrations that were made to Egypt. And we know that there were droughts during this period. We know this because in the soil of this period, you see windborne sands and not water sediments in the core samples. So when you see this, this indicates a period of famine. And this is how we know that the famine started in the 1800s. Now, Egyptian records reveal numerous nomadic groups entering into Egypt as early as the 20th century BC, which would be during the time of the patriarchs. Trading between the Semitic world and Egypt was commonly practiced. Archaeologists have found numerous Egyptian artifacts throughout the land of Canaan and Syria from this period, confirming that there was extensive trade between the lands of Canaan, Syria, Jordan, and Egypt. In fact, There is a famous wall painting in a tomb in Egypt at Beni Hassan, dated 1890 BC. Now, this painting, interestingly, you know, it depicts a group of Asiatic traders coming from the land of Canaan, coming from the Levant. They include metalsmiths and shepherds traveling from the Levant into Egypt. And indeed, that's what the patriarchs were. They were shepherds. Now, the Beni Hassan painting depicts these Asiatic nomads with full heads of hair, beards, and many wearing, guess what? Multicolored kilts for men and long, colorful garments for women. Now, Genesis 37 3 states that Israel loved Joseph more than any of his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. So this would match the style of clothing worn during this period by the people of Canaan. Now there are Semitic migrants known as the Hyksos who migrated into Egypt in 1730 BC from the Levant. The Hyksos grew in number and eventually took the throne to rule over the Nile Delta region in northern Egypt for nearly a century. In fact, Dynasty 15 to 17 in Egypt are known as the period of the Hyksos. Now, the name Hyksos in Egyptian means foreigners, and that's what the Hyksos were. They were foreigners who ended up ruling the land for nearly over a century and were eventually expelled in 1570 to 1550 BC. Now, the Hyksos, who came from the Levant, would have welcomed Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to Egypt because, indeed, they were also foreigners who migrated to Egypt. So, Joseph's ascent to power would have occurred under the Hyksos kings, who were friendly to migrants for they themselves had migrated into Egypt. So, therefore, it's reasonable that the story of the Hebrews migrating to Egypt, flourishing, and Joseph ascending to power is reasonable during the rule of the Hyksos. So, we can see from the historical evidence here in the archaeology that, indeed, the story of jacob and the hebrews migrating to egypt and flourishing and joseph rising to power there is indeed evidence that this could be very well indeed a historical account which sets the stage for the events of the exodus now once again uh, i don't expect you to get all this information listening on the radio i would encourage you to go to our website at evidenceandanswers.org and take a look at my uh, article, The Exodus Examined. You can read carefully and take your time as you re-listen to the show or read the article that I've written there. And also you can enjoy great interviews I've had with scholars on this area. One of the best, I think, is my interview with Dr. Eugene Merrill on this whole event of the Exodus. When we come back, we're going to talk about more evidence for the Exodus and the account of the conquest of Israel in the book of Joshua when we come back here on Evidence and Answers.
0: We've run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers radio broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or perhaps hold an apologetics conference, give him a call locally in Hawaii. That number is 483-0586, or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you, our listeners, for the opportunity to donate head on over to our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org, and you may do so right there online on the homepage. You'll also find we have a wide variety of resources available to you. So be sure to share our website with those around you. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucaran.